The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. How much fun would it be to walk out on your balcony and grab a handful of fresh strawberries, then pop them in your mouth? Kristen Pullen will tell us exactly how to do that in today's episode. We will also discover how to successfully grow strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries right in your own patio containers. There are even more possibilities for your own edible landscape. Kristen has completed her Bachelor of Science in Biology at Ryder University. After college, she took an internship position at Longwood Gardens in Chester County, Pennsylvania. The internship focused on all research aspects of public gardens from tissue culture to new plant evaluation and selection. Currently, Kristen is the Woody Ornamental Portfolio Manager at Star Roses and Plants. Her responsibilities include coordinating the development, launch, and market evaluation of all new trees, shrubs, and edible plants. Kristen also manages the Bushel and Berry brand that provides both edible and ornamental uses for the home garden. This is episode 106, Homegrown Berries from Containers, with Kristen Pullen on the Garden Question Podcast. Are you in the middle of planning or planting your garden this year? I have a list for you of 57 annual and perennial plants bugs don't bother, curated by Jason Reeves. You heard Jason present his list in episode 101. If you'd like to get your own copy of the 57 annual and perennial plants bugs don't bother, then go to this episode's page on the GardenQuestionPodcast.com and get the list. We'll also set you up with a good-to-know newsletter. Kristen, what are the advantages to growing your own fruit? Growing your own fruit at home, I think, has mental health benefits. Same with all plants. I think growing them is great for getting outside and working in the garden, working with your hands. But specifically having homegrown fruit, it's just a different flavor profile and a different availability than what you'd find in the supermarket. You'll find a wider range of flavor profiles, great for entertaining, also useful for being really fresh right off the plant, as opposed to variable tastes when you buy the packaged stuff with how long it's been at the supermarket. How do you decide the space that you need for growing a fruiting plant? It depends on what type of plant you're looking for. When we're talking fruiting plants, it's a pretty wide range. With the bushel and berry brand, they're bred to be compact. You can have a container garden on your patio with these plants, or you could go in the ground. And most of our varieties only take up space about three to four foot on center. You could plant a single plant since they're self-pollinating if you have that three to four foot space. Or you could do things like plant hedges. It really depends on the type of garden you want to build. How would you classify the bushel and berry plants? So we classify them as compact. 
For us, that's really three feet by three feet. Some can get closer to four feet if you don't do any trimming. Compact is really the word we use. They're not going to be super tiny, like a perennial or something really small. They're a decent size that can be maintainable in that container and still give a good yield of fruit. What are some of the easier fruiting plants to grow? I think if you're just getting started, I would recommend trying strawberries or raspberries and blackberries. They're very easy to get to fruit. Strawberries are quick, so you're going to get that satisfaction the first season you have the plants. There's two different kinds of strawberries. You could do a single yield one where you get big fruit at one time of the year. Or there's ever-bearing types, which is what we have, and you get smaller fruits, but throughout the season. So you'll get fruiting all summer. They're usually really sweet, which I really like about the ever-bearing ones we have. Caneberries don't have any strange soil recommendations, like some fruits need acidic soil. The caneberry, raspberry, and blackberry can just be grown in your typical garden soil or potting soil, and that really makes it easier on people just getting into it. And that's in container or in the ground. Correct. Right, yeah. I found that a big key to successful gardening is knowing your plants before you buy. What should we know before buying fruiting plants? You want to know about the plant and also about where you are. A lot of fruiting plants depend on chill hours, and a chill hour is an hour of time spent between the temperatures of 32 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit in that range. Depending on where you are in the country, you get a certain amount of chill hours for your zip code. That's easily looked up online. There's a lot of university extensions or USDA website will tell you how many chill hours you get by where you live. Then you want to do some research on the type of fruit that you're looking for and look up generally how much chill hours it needs. Then you can dive a little bit deeper and say, I want this specific variety of blueberry. Blueberries can range from needing 1,000 chill hours to as low as 400 chill hours. It depends on the variety. So you just want to research that before you get started. Can the chill hours vary within a growing zone? They can. They're not necessarily directly correlated. So like you can't say zone seven always gets 600 chill hours. It's very microclimate dependent. That's why I recommend looking it up by your zip code. What is a pollinator plant? Pollinator plants are essentially there to increase fruit yield. Some plants like bushel and berry are self-pollinating, but some older fruiting varieties, they need a pollinator plant because they can't self-pollinate very well. Even if you had your plant and there's plenty of bees or the other pollinators for that plant, it's just never going to have as much fruit set as if you had a second or a third plant with it to provide extra pollen exchange to help pollinate those flowers and give you more fruit. There's been a lot of new breeding to eliminate where we can needing a pollinator plant. There's some things that are always going to need it, though. If you have a self-pollinating plant, do you need interaction with the insects and all still coming in and pollinating that plant, or are you dependent on something else to pollinate the plant so it'll produce the fruit? It'll produce some, like say you put it in a cage and it couldn't have access to any pollinators at all. It'll still produce some, but you still need those pollinators to get the true fruit set. So you still want it. You need the bees and all the great insects that are out there to be pollinators and get the pollen exchange from that own plant into its own flowers. Once that plant's pollinated, how soon could you expect to have fruit? It varies by variety. Blueberries, for example, you'll have flowers probably May, April. It'll get pollinated. You'll start to see some swelling of like green, small fruits end of May into mid-June. 
And you'll start to see the blue berry fruit, the typical color that you're used to starting to form anywhere from mid-June through July. Well, what about the other plants like the raspberries and blackberries? Do they need pollinators? They're also self-pollinating. They will give you some fruit if there were to be no pollinators around at all, but they don't need a pollinator plant. So you can buy one raspberry shortcake plant and get fruit without having a pollinator. You typically see fruit on those later. You'll get those end of summer into fall fruiting. So you'll see that August, maybe a little bit at the end of July, but through August and petering out by September. What type of container should we be looking for to grow a fruiting crop? You want to start with the size of plant you're buying. So you want to get something that at least one to two sizes bigger than the container that you're buying the plant in to give it enough room to establish in its new home. If you're growing a one-gallon or two-gallon plant, I would say look to get maybe a five-gallon deco container. Make sure you check for drainage holes in the container, though. I've noticed a theme at some of the garden centers I've gone to where container looks beautiful and there's no holes in it. Surefire way to kill the plant. Just check for that. And then you want to give it enough room to establish into its new home. Could you take just a standard nursery pot and then grow in the nursery pot and just use the deco pot or decorating pot as kind of as a cover and just set the plant over inside of it? Is there a problem with doing that? There's no problem with doing that. I've seen plenty of people doing it when you buy it. That plant has probably been growing in that container for at least a year. It's probably pretty root bound. If you leave it in that original container, you're going to have to water it more because it's sucking up more water. Whereas if you gave it a little bit of a bigger container with some new soil, it would be easier to maintain the watering. Yeah, so you could just upsize the nursery pot and then if you want a decorative pot, put around it. Then as far as the drainage, those are going to drain, but you don't want water collecting and holding them in that decorative pot because we're potentially going to drown the plant. Yeah, you still want drainage no matter what, even if it's just flipping another pot into one. You don't want anything to collect water or that plant be sitting in standing water. That's not going to work. How much attention do we need to pay to the soil when we're transplanting the plant? For everything in the bushel and berry collection, you're going to want to go with a standard nursery mix. And when I say that, you're wanting to look for something that's a mix of larger particulate matter. So usually that's pine bark or some other kind of large mix into the nursery mix. It will also have something to help with drainage like perlite or peat into the mix. You can usually find if you're looking at blends, 80% pine bark, 20% peat is a good mix. For blueberries, you have to pay a little bit closer attention because blueberries like a more acidic soil. Blueberries tend to have acidic soil needs around pH of 4.5 to 5.5. The way you can achieve that if you're growing in a container is to either purchase an acidic soil or test the soil you already have. And if you need to lower it, you can buy soil acidifier from your local garden center. You can also add any type of natural soil acidifier, pine needles, coffee grounds. You really want to get it into that 5.5 to 4.5 range for a blueberry. What about fertility? What, what do you need to look at for that? Fertility is called an EC rating, so it's really measuring the level of salts in the soil. These tests can be done by your local university extension service. If you send them off a sample of your soil, they'll test it for you and send you a report back of all this. That EC reading should really be between 500 and 1,000. That's kind of the sweet spot for container gardening. Give us an idea of the fertilization needs. They like an even mix. A 2020 fertilizer mix between nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. 
I wouldn't recommend going to any of the other mixes that have something low. They respond really well to an even mix of that. You can get some leaf distortion if you're having a shortage or an overabundance of those. We have great resources with pictures on our bushel and berry website that'll tell you if your leaf is looking like this, this might be what's wrong and how to correct the soil. If you got a leaf distortion or color distortion, could that also be an indication of a possible pest problem? Do you have resources to detect that? Detecting the pests can be a little bit more difficult, especially if they've done damage and moved on or they're really small. We do offer support for when you reach out through our Bushel and Berry website. You can send in a picture and we can help you diagnose it. A couple of the common ones you might see would be aphids. They're small sucking insects. They cluster around the new growth because it's easier for them to eat and penetrate in. That can show up as when the leaves finally open, they have distorted edges. There's buckling to the leaves. You can also get thrips, which do the same thing. They'll congregate on the young foliage. And when it finally fully opens, you'll see instead of a solid green, it'll be speckled across the leaf. Like it looks like someone poked it a bunch of times with a tiny needle. That's typical of thrips. Anything else that we should be aware of? I guess we should maybe talk about the local populations of especially raspberry and caneberry and what to be careful for. I personally have wild raspberries on my property and they're great, but they can carry virus and that virus can be carried from those wild populations to your container plants by those insects I just mentioned. You want to check around your property for these wild growing plants and just make sure that they look healthy. If you see anything of concern, you might want to remove that wild growing plant so that you're not vectoring a virus to any healthy plants that you bring onto your property. How about if you have a limb that looks like it's diseased? We run into weird looking stuff on plants all the time. For the cane berries, I would say, you know, regardless, cut it out, especially if you have the majority of the plant looks healthy. Just cut the cane that looks bad down to the soil level and remove that entire cane from the plant. As always, you want to sterilize your pruners if you think that there's really a problem and you don't want to transfer it to your other plants. You just spray your pruners down with ethanol or wash them with soap and water after you do those cuts. Same with blueberries. Just cut out the damaged or diseased-looking stem. Well, what about other general pruning? When should we handle that, or do we even need to do that? In a lot of cases, you don't need to do a lot of pruning to these plants. But there is some maintenance care that if you're keeping these plants for years, I would recommend you do since they are shrubs and will give you years of entertainment. You want to prune so that you won't affect the next year's flowering and fruiting. I will start with raspberry and blackberry. The fruiting starts on the old wood. What you want to do is you want to look at the plant in maybe February, March when it's coming out of dormancy or just about to. Look at the structure of the plant. They like a lot of airflow to keep the plant healthy so that diseases don't affect the plant. You want to keep four to three healthy, old, strong canes that are thicker canes. Anything else, you can go in and prune out down to the ground around that time of year. And then just let the plant flush out from those three to four canes you left and don't trim after that because all of your fruit will come from those canes. On the blueberries, you can do a little bit of trimming right after fruiting, but anything that you're cutting off after like July 4th is going to impact the next year's fruiting. I would only do shaping trims on the blueberries and mostly leave the rest of the plant intact because what happens after July 4th is that the buds start to go dormant 
And it's actually setting flowering and fruiting buds already as the days get shorter for next year's flower and fruit. When you're shaping, you're not cutting the outside edges of it, are you? You're more going inside and, and cutting back to a lateral branch. You're more shaping like outside edge, removing dead or damaged canes, removing any like really thin, wispy branches from the plant. If your plant is super, super old and it's gotten unruly, you can come in and do a hard trim, but just be aware that you'll get it back to looking nice. But that year that you trim it, you might not have as much fruit as you're used to. How about the other pests like deer, squirrels, and birds? Do you have any good remedies for those? Yeah, there's been a couple products that I like coming out. I like bird watching, so I don't like to recommend bird netting. There are smaller netting that has come out where the birds won't get stuck in it or it won't hurt them to have it around the plant. They sell them in these already assembled pop-up tents. It's a really fine mesh. You can put it over the entire plant and it'll protect it from birds, squirrels, but still have enough of an airflow to allow pollinators in. You only need to do that once you see those blueberries starting to ripen, like we had talked about earlier. You can leave it off before that when it's flowering so that all the pollination can happen. Then you put that cage over the whole plant. It'll protect from birds and squirrels. And the other thing that's cool is if you have a way to fasten that cage down to like your porch or wherever your containers are, as long as it's fastened to something, it'll protect from deer too. If you don't fasten it down, the deer will pick it up. They're very brave and determined. Another thing I like with birds is I always forget what this material is called, but it's kind of like the shiny material you used to see in pinwheels. Mylar? Yeah. It's like you hang that up and it moves with the wind and it'll scare them off. And then got to make sure you move it every couple months because they're smart and they'll recognize that that's not a threat. But if you keep rotating it around parts of your deck or yard, that does a good job as well. I've seen plants come in boxes. I've seen them come in containers. I see them in bare root. Is there a preferred way to buy a fruiting plant? I think it depends on your situation. There's plants that come available early in the season as dormant boxed product. I think that's a really great option if you're new to fruit and gardening and you want to try something at a lower price point just to see how it works. That dormant packaging tends to be $10, $20. So it's a good way to get started and give it a try. See how you like it. Once you get familiar with it, and if you want to do bigger and larger containers, you can go up into the larger input sizes. So the two-gallon and the three-gallon pots that you would see at your nursery or um, local garden center. You want fruit right now, and you want an impulse on your patio or whatever entertaining you're going to do this summer, then I would go buy for the larger containers to start with. I have not been a box plant buyer. How do you handle that? Yeah, so they do require a little bit extra care as the boxed product. They typically show up before your frost-free date has arrived which means you don't want to go directly outside. I would recommend removing them from the box, planting them into the container you want to use, and maybe just keeping it inside until your frost-free date has passed. Just set it next to a window and allow it to grow out that way. If you don't have the space to do that or you don't want to do that, you can store it in the original packaging. I would just make sure that it has air holes in the bag or box that it came in. I would also remove the plastic from the top of the plant. So it usually comes with stems. Keep the plastic by the roots. Just make sure that the roots stay nice and moist, not overly saturated, but at least a little bit damp. 
can keep that in a, a dark, dry place, like a garage or something like that, until you're ready to plant. The reason you would poke a hole in the plastic, too, is so it could drain and not retain that water when you're watering it. Yeah, you're not watering it that often, but you do want it to have some moisture. So, yeah, you want the holes in there. So if you needed to give it something supplemental, it wouldn't be sitting in that water. With either bulk containers or bare root or whatever, and we've planted it, we've gone through our first season. Winter's coming. How do we handle overwintering that plant? If you are going to experience like extreme temperatures that are really cold and those roots are going to be exposed in that pot, like you live in zone four, I would recommend you pulling it into a protected area. It's like a garage, a basement, or a shed. Anything that even has that little bit of protection will help your plant overwinter. Other areas, you can kind of leave the plant outside, move it up closer to the foundation of your house. That'll give it protection. And then you can also even like wrap the pot in burlap. That helps protect those roots. You don't always have to cover the top of the plant. It's the roots that are really the focus because they are probably to the sides of our containers at that point. And then if you're having chill winds, especially without any snow cover to isolate, that's what can end up killing your plant. Just make sure to give it some extra protection around that area. Is there a particular temperature that you really want to be mindful of adding that extra protection? It's interesting. We've seen a lot of this these past couple of years. It's actually not a low temperature that I'm worried about. It's an extreme temperature fluctuation that I'm worried about. Plants are usually pretty resilient. And if they've gone through pretty steady acclimation into winter, the temperatures drop normally. They've gone dormant and they're fine. If we go through these mild winters, you know, where temperatures are staying 50 to 60, stuff hasn't really gone fully dormant. And then you look in the 10-day and tomorrow it's supposed to go from 60 to 18. That's when I think you should be keeping an eye out. And that's what I would be concerned about. If you see those big temperature fluctuations coming, that's when you should go and give some protection to your plant. That'd be the same as if you had it inside or in a garage and it was warm there. You wouldn't want to just take it out and have that big fluctuation between the plant and the environment it's coming from. Plants are really resilient, but it's the temperature fluctuations that will stress them and will cause loss. If you started your plant indoors and it's at whatever your heat was set at, you're going to want to transition it outside. So maybe it goes from outdoors to at your garage door where there's a little bit more temperature fluctuation. Then it goes outside in the shade a little bit. So it's still acclimating and then you put it fully out into the sun. Let's say you have an extreme amount of fruit on your plant. Is there time that you would want to thin that crop out or should you just look in anticipation of a lot of good eating? (laughs) For bushel and berries specifically, these are actually pretty unique in that they're a lot of snacking crops. They don't set fully the way you would see a commercial blueberry set where it's like, oh my gosh, I have to harvest everything right now or I'm going to lose the crop or stuff's going to start to go bad on the plant. These plants will produce pretty consistent snacking quantities throughout their fruit cycles, about four weeks from mid-June to mid-July. There are certain varieties that will come on all at once, especially if you decide you're going to buy five plants, you might run into that situation then yes, I would look to harvest as much as you can while it's ripe. If you can't eat it all in that period of time, they're great for freezing. They're great for making jelly or jam. And we have a bunch of recipes on our website that you could use them into. But I'm thinking about too is, you know, sometimes a fruiting tree can overproduce and they start dropping. Is that ever a case you need to be concerned about? Not that I've seen with blueberries and raspberries. 
we work with some other varieties like ornamental peaches or some of the stone fruit. You definitely want to thin those out. Otherwise, they'll start dropping, like you said, and they won't fully ripen or put enough energy in to get the big size fruit that you want to really consume. Give us some confidence. We've maybe grown fruit before and weren't successful. Need confidence into trying it again, or maybe it's our first time to try growing fruit crop. Give us some confidence. Sure. I think a lot of things can come down to watering. I got some advice when I first started out. I was kind of in the same boat. I was like, I don't know whether to trim the plant. I don't know whether to water it more, water it less. And the advice I got was be ruthless. The plants can take it. Just look at the watering and there's a really easy way to tell if something needs water or not. If it's a pot that's reasonable size and you can lift it up and there's no weight to the pot, like I could lift it up and there's no problem, it needs water. If you lift it up and there's some restraint there, then you're probably good. You can also touch, see, put your hand down into the first couple inches of the soil. If there's no water there, it needs a watering. Plants in bushel and berry, they're really resilient. Blueberries and raspberries, they'll come back even if you had to trim them hard, if you had to transplant them into a new pot. There's a lot that you can do to help your plant, even if a mistake is made. We're always there for you if you want to reach out with questions or ask a professional or ask an expert. Send us your pictures. We're more than happy to help you with plants. A technique that I've used when I have an extremely dried out root ball in the container to the point where the soil is contracting away from the side, I'll take that whole container, root ball and all, and submerge it into a larger container of water. That way the root ball rehydrates and the water just doesn't pour off the sides between the root ball and the container never really saturating and getting that root ball rehydrated. Leave the container submerged in water until all the air bubbles stop coming out. Then you'll want to pull the container out of the water, let it drain off, and you're ready to go. Definitely been there before. (laughs) But yeah, if you catch it early and do that, that'll bring it back way faster than you trying to stand there with a hose for 30 minutes trying to get that to get saturated again. One thing that I like about a lot of the fruiting plants is that they have ornamental qualities to them. Could you walk us through the ornamental side versus the fruiting side or combination of those two? Bushel and berry is all about having multiple uses for the same plant. We want them to not only be delicious, but also pretty and ornamental for your garden. Blueberries, for example, we have three seasons of interest. So we have, you know, the cute little bell-shaped flowers in spring, fruiting season in the summer, fall foliage colors and shades of red, all the way to deep burgundy and oranges. The other thing that's nice about some of our varieties, specifically pink icing and peach sorbet, they were selected to have spring foliage interest too. So when the foliage emerges in the spring, it'll emerge bright pink or bright orange. Silver dollar also emerges and almost has like a eucalyptus-like look to the foliage. We're always looking for those extra features. Our blackberry and our raspberry are thornless so that they can be kid-friendly, pet-friendly. They can be at hand level or kid level on your patio and you don't have to worry about them getting hurt. Strawberries come in three different flower colors too. So they're great for putting into your mixed hanging baskets with your annuals or your other plants that you want to use. And they're ever-bearing, so you'll get those flower colors all summer long. And so we've got these different varieties that you're offering there. Are there different flavors and tastes to them? 
Yes, there definitely are. And there's even different berry sizes, which a lot of times correlate with the taste. For example, we have jelly bean, which is a larger blueberry, and it has a really intense sweet flavor. It almost tastes like blueberry jelly off the plant, which is a unique flavor that you wouldn't necessarily get at the grocery store. And then we have some others like berry bucks, which is a hedging type blueberry named after boxes. Boxwood play on that. Produces smaller, darker fruit. Those have a little bit more of a bite to them. They're really nice for snacking or for putting into jams and jellies, so preserving. Can you grow fruiting plants and hang in baskets? Definitely. We've been looking to expand outside of just the regular deco container. We are going vertical. We have some genetics that work great in hanging baskets. Our three strawberry varieties would be great. And there's three flower colors. So there's a red, a white, and a pink in the strawberries. We've also recently added two hanging basket blueberries, which have really nice cascading habits. Those are varieties Midnight Cascade and Sapphire Cascade. What's nice about the vertical aspect, too, is if you're hanging your hanging basket high enough up, the deer won't be able to get to it. You can eliminate a garden pest that way uh, if you're so inclined. How low will they hang? The hanging basket blueberries will probably cascade over the container about one to two feet. And then they don't get much higher than maybe two to three inches. I've even seen people do them in the garden as like cascading over a hanging wall because they do kind of have that like ground cover cascading look in the garden too. You were talking about that. I was thinking ground cover, if that would work. I've seen people use strawberries as ground cover because they're super easy. They'll root in from the runners. So if you want an edible ground cover, I'd say go for any of the strawberries. They'd work Now you've mentioned... Bushel and barium multiple times throughout our talk now. Where would you find those plants? They're nationwide at Big Box in any size from one gallon to three gallon. Great availability online. If you go to Bushel and Berry, our Where to Buy page on our website, you can search by your zip code. And we also have a full listing of all of our e-commerce partners that carry this brand. Depending on your area of the country, we have wholesale growers shipping into garden centers. Those would be listed on our zip code where to buy website as well. If you're going into a physical store location, I would just recommend you call them ahead of time and ask if you're looking for a specific variety, see if they're carrying that. Are there certain varieties that are in one part of the country and maybe not the other? Yes, it would depend on the chill hours. You're going to see the varieties split up by chill hours based on where they can grow. You're going to see the lower chill hours in the lower part of the country, further south, and you'll see like jelly bean and some ones that need a thousand chill hours more than northern climates. Are you looking to expand the line into other fruits or is this pretty much it? We are looking to diversify uh, in coming years, definitely. We mentioned chill hours. That's a struggle for the southern growers and southern people who want fruiting plants. We are looking in the future to add a passion fruit and we are looking to add a tea camellia. Bushel and berry will be expanding beyond just our berry friends. You know, that's something I just learned within the last two years of doing this podcast, that tea comes from camellias. Camellia sinensis, so tea hedges. <laughs> it's great. Did you know you can get all the different colors of tea off the same plant? No, I didn't. How does that work? Yeah, on the camellia, it's the age of the leaf. If you want the white and green tea, you can get that from the really young soft wood. And then if you move down the plant to the older leaves, you start to get like black and oolong tea, the stronger tea flavors. 
And then you can even harvest the flowers and do like a blossom tea, which is a really light tasting tea. Oh, wow. That's really very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure you've seen a lot of gardens and experienced a lot of gardening. What do you wish people would do differently in their gardens? So I'm going to say something and, you know, it's not the fault of the gardener necessarily, but I wish people would stop planting ornamental shrubs five inches from their foundation. You know, I've cut that problem at my house with some Thuya emerald green that were planted like right up against my siding. And now they're growing at like a 40, 50 degree angle away from the house. When we say foundation plantings, we mean four feet off the house and they'll grow to fill in. Please don't plant them right up against the siding. (laughs) That would be great. I wonder why that ever happened. I mean, why does that even seem right? I don't know. And I don't know if it's just cookie cutter landscapes. You know, my I live kind of in new development and you can see the same thing in every single yard. They've got a green giant planted right next to the house growing away from it. But it's an easy fix if you catch it early. I would maybe just take a look around your yard, especially if you're moving into a new place. And if you see some plants that you could easily move and give them their proper space, right plant for right place. That would be my summary of what I would like to get across. Yeah, I, I kind of have a rule of thumb. If you move into a brand new house, it's just to take the landscape out and then move it to the border because it's probably a cheap plant that's going to grow real tall and real big and be high maintenance. We've done a lot of that in our design build business. Yeah, and I think, you know, like you said, with your design business, I think a lot of this isn't necessarily done by plant people or landscape people. I think it's done by the construction people. So no fault to them, but they just might not know. That's right. What garden myth would you like to smash today? Ooh, that's a good question. (laughs) Not everything needs to be a native. I think it's great to incorporate natives in your landscape, but there's definitely advancements in breeding that incorporate species that might not be native to your area, but that improve the plant so that it'll be long lasting and still a great pollinator plant and still a really nice addition to your landscape without having to be native. Not being native doesn't necessarily mean that it's invasive. It's important to pay attention to those lists. What's your earliest garden memory? Being at my grandmother's house and picking green beans fresh off of plants. So I guess it was edible plants that got me into the business. (laughs) (laughs) There's an experience before that that I don't remember, but that people tell me. My mom really liked cactus. And when I was a toddler, just learning to walk, walked right up to one of her cactus, just like full on hugged it. Oh, boy. (laughs) And had a less than pleasant experience, but I'm still here (laughs) and I love succulents. So (laughs) (laughs) You were a toddler pincushion, it sounds like. Yes. (laughs) So maybe I blocked that memory from my oh, mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why did you decide to pursue horticulture as a profession? By accident. <laughs> yeah. Tell us the story. When I first went to college, I actually went in wanting to be a forensic science major. So I wanted to help solve crimes and process DNA and all that stuff. It was a combination of realizing I'm not very good at math and then also having my first botany class. We got to go outside and we got to grow our own plant experiment. And I had walked up to the professor afterwards and I said, do we get to do more of this like later in the semester? And she said, well, why don't you come work in my lab? It kind of snowballed from there. I changed my major to straight biology. I did undergraduate research in plant science, allelopathic relationships, chemical relationships between invasive species and native species. 
And then from there, I went to Longwood Gardens for an internship. It's been a great road. Do you have a funny garden story you'd like to share with us? I was at a a party one time. Certain people had gotten very uh, into the party. It's just this great like scent memory. This guy was leaning up against the railing on the patio, and he ended up falling over the railing into the garden bed below, and there just so happened to be mint there. So it was just this like overwhelming smell of mint. He was fine. Everyone was laughing. He was laughing. It was great. It's one of those scent memories that I feel like plants help us create a lot of those. It's fun. (laughs) Uh, In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I've been really lucky to have really good mentors along my career. Give a shout out to Alan Petravich at Longwood, who was my boss who oversaw my research internship. I got a lot of hands-on experience at Longwood Gardens, which you don't necessarily get in school. So I feel like that set me up really well. And then my other two mentors have since passed away, but they were great influences on my life. Greg Souls, he was a great titan in the industry, just in terms of perennial evaluation and plant selection. And Mike Duvall, who was really big into the ornamental shrub side, helped me a lot with learning about shrubs and the marketplace in terms of big box store placement and just solving problems of looking at plants and saying, what does the homeowner need help with? And what does our grower customer need help with? I miss them both, but they were great mentors for me. What's your most valuable garden mistake? I think my most valuable garden mistake was someone telling me to go trim something. And I thought I got this and going to do it without thing to think you should ask more questions. And I went and did it and I did it wrong. Didn't kill all the plants, but you know, it set them back in blooming. I think it's just to not be afraid to ask questions. We have a lot to learn, and especially at Star, I managed all of the woody ornamentals, and that's a vast swath of genera with different recommendations, different needs for probably every genera that we work with. So there's always a lot to learn. Never be afraid to ask questions. I think all of us plant people are pretty welcome and opening, and we want to talk about plants and share what we well, know. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? Yeah, I've learned recently that there's been a lot of talk around drought tolerance. First, it was only talking about that in the West Coast and the Southwest. Last year, we started to see it kind of creep into the Northeast a little bit. We had some drought where we were. I think there's going to be value in the future looking towards plants that are adaptable and can withstand those extreme temperature fluctuations. I think we're going to have to start looking for plants that can put up with some of the differences in climate that we're seeing. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have plants that remind me of the Pine Barrens. (laughs) Would you explain that? I grew up in South Jersey, and I grew up hanging out in the Pine Barrens, which if people don't know, it's a huge national park. It's called Wharton State Forest. It is a completely pine, sand, acidic soil type of landscape. I have a lot of plants that are ericaceous, so acid-loving. Got blueberry, rhododendron, skimmia japonica, and I love conifers. (laughs) So I have a lot of conifers, metasequoia, pines, cryptomeria, all those type of plants that just remind me of my youth and a nice nostalgia for the type of plants I grew up around. What did you learn from your garden this last season that you're going to apply this season? Weed earlier and more frequently. (laughs) (laughs) I'm terrible about weeding. 
think I need to get more ground cover plants in to help with the weeds. I've seen some podcasts talking about that as using that as, you know, weed suppressant. I think I'm definitely going to take that to heart and give that a try. What are your future plans for your garden? We're introducing some really exciting new trees and shrubs that I want to get into my garden or that are already in there and I'll, I'll see them more mature these next few years. We're going to have compact red buds. So red buds that are only getting eight to 10 feet tall after 10 years of growth. It's really exciting, especially for smaller gardens. Then I'm really excited to have oak leaf hydrangea in the garden. It's our first introduction of oak leaf hydrangea at Star. So we're going to have two that come out, a compact one, and then a nice six foot one that you could use for flowering hedges. But I love their flowers and I love that they're partially shade tolerant because I'm right next to the woods. Finding stuff is a little bit hard. And then we get fall foliage color too. So I'm excited about that. What plant are you in love with this week? I think this week I'm in love with flowering cherries. Just got to walk with a breeder and look at some new selections of flowering cherries that we can potentially take a look at, maybe introduce some new improved breeding. Really excited about that. And it was kind of the jump start to spring for me. Like, okay, it's finally here. And we got out to do our first plant walk. And that was super exciting. Now, you've mentioned Star a couple of times, and we haven't even talked about Star. Just give us a brief rundown about Star. Star Roses and Plants is an intellectual plant property company. We work with our own breeding and breeders around the world to evaluate and bring new plants to market. Our customers are primarily wholesale growers and landscapers, people that are buying young plants from us and finishing them in a size that can go into a landscape or in the garden center. We want to solve problems for them, be innovative, and then we also want to solve problems for the homeowner. Star has programs in rose, edibles, and woody ornamentals. Star Roses is the parent company for Knockout Roses, Drift Roses, Bushel and Berry, and the Bloomables brand. Those are our names that you would see us in retail as. Okay. Anything you want to reveal or we can get a scoop on in this podcast? I think I gave you a, a sneak peek into Bushel and Berry. That's probably those new additions aren't going to come out to our growers until 2025, probably. So that's probably the largest sneak peek that I could give at the moment. Do you have any closing thoughts? <laughs> Plants are here, I think, to make people happy. I'm really fortunate to work in an industry where the product is something that goes to improving the end customer's life, whether that be giving beauty to their house or their inside or cutting flowers to bring indoors, edible gardening. It's a product that enhances the end consumer's life in a way that I don't think other industries have that connection with their customer to the end product. Really fortunate to be working with plants. I hope everyone is happy to be living with plants and I just wish everyone has a happy spring. Kristen, tell us how people may connect with you. The best way to reach me is on LinkedIn. I'm under Kristen Pullen at LinkedIn.com. I'd like to remind you about getting the list of 57 annual and perennial plants Bugs Don't Bother, curated by Jason Reeves. You heard Jason present his list in episode 101. If you'd like to get your own copy of the 57 annual and perennial plants Bugs Don't Bother, then go to episode page 101 on the GardenQuestionPodcast.com and get the list. We'll also set you up with a good-to-know newsletter. This has been episode 106, Homegrown Berries from Containers with Kristen Pullen on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Kristen. You're awesome. 
The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.